Hello, this is Dr. Amy Lindsay, and I'm here to remind you that the information in this podcast is not medical or other professional advice. This podcast is for informational and educational purposes only. You should not rely on anything you hear as a substitute for professional care by a doctor or other qualified medical professional who is familiar with your personal situation. Listening to this podcast may, however, give you a sense of belonging, make you spit take your coffee, realize that DJs can do more than play music, uplift you during a shit day, teach you that sometimes doctors swear too much, or remind you that you are not alone. Amy, just you said we all have uh, belly buttons and assholes. <laughs> is that is that a medical thing that you've learned that we all have belly buttons and we all have assholes? Yeah, we all have belly buttons and we all have assholes. What was Unless, that in reference to? Um, I was just talking about how there's really more similarities between us as a human species than differences. Although my belly button just collects lint. It's not very important. It was so important at one point in the very early stages of your life. Really? What did it do? Fed you. Your umbilical cord I to you, your mother. I meant after. I thought it had something afterwards, like some superpower. I know it fed me and my mom, but did it have some superpower afterwards? You know, um, I do know that there are studies out there where there are meridians and things around your belly button that are important. I actually... I didn't study that, so I don't know much about that. The study of belly buttons? Well, the energy around it. Yeah. I, I, I don't know. I didn't study it, but I know it exists. Yeah. When I met you, you had a belly button ring. I did. Yes. And it fell out, and I just didn't put it back in. Hey, hey, hey. It's the doctor and the DJ. Doctor and the DJ. On today's Doctor and the DJ podcast, Amy and I will continue to talk about belly buttons and piercings and also how maybe even if we're all different, we're all very similar. We'll also talk to the legendary Johnny Marr about his brand new record, Fever Dreams, parts one through four, which he's releasing. And we're going to feature his music throughout this podcast. And we're going to give you a song at the very end to celebrate all that is Johnny Marr. It's a really great conversation. So keep listening to hear from our friend Johnny Marr. Let's hear about it. I'm... The other day, I honestly had this thought. Am I too old to pierce my nose again? Do, should I get a nose ring again? I see some women my age having nose rings. Is that a thing I should try to do? And then I thought about belly button rings. And I was like, oh, God, no, I'm too old for that. But then it's not about being too old just for me. And then you sat down at the table the other day and you said, I had a dream you had a nose ring. I'm like, oh, my God, maybe it's a sign. 
I had a nose ring I had and six earrings. And you know how like, you know, people look, some people just look awesome. Like when they get pierces, they do, they just, they look at, I did not, I, I didn't, I'm not in that category actually. So for me, it's like, I look back and go, oh my God, dude, what are you doing? What kind of identity were you looking for? But it, you know, I wanted to be different. When I first got my earring, for instance, I wanted to be different than the people around me in Spokane. And at the time, people weren't getting their ears pierced uh, very often then. It was very like rebellious to do that at the time. I remember later when it became like mainstream, then I had to get mine out because I couldn't be like everybody else. But I remember trying to be different. And guess what? There were other people around me who had had other piercings and we were all kind of had that in common. I pierced my nipples once. On, on by yourself? No, I had it professionally done. Oh, okay. I was like, you just looked down and pierced it? Because that's the story Amy would tell. Like, but, oh, I was in the but, Amazon and I decided... Right I actually to- pierced one of my friend's nipples for her once. Really? Mm-hmm. Mm. How did that go? Uh, I think she's... No, I don't think she still has it. Uh, but she had it for a while. Pre-doctor days. And so, uh, so you had your nipples pierced? Mm-hmm. How'd that go for you? I took them out. Those were the pre-John years. I don't remember any nipple. I would remember something like that. I remember the belly button ring, but I would remember. They didn't heal up that well. And so I was like, yeah, I took them out. Aren't you uh, a little... uh, I have big boobs. Yeah, yeah. So your boobs are big. So is that... (laughs) That seems like a bad strategy. You know, everybody should do whatever they want, right? Yeah, yeah. Whatever. For me, it was just extra weight just bringing them to my knees faster than I wanted. <laughs> fair, fair. So Amy, uh, somehow this is leading to our interview with Johnny Marr. So we <laughs> we didn't ask him these questions, by the way. So stay is, tuned. Is he had nipple rings? Yeah, stay tuned for the Johnny Marr interview. It is on its way. We might have asked him, so yeah, stay I don't tuned. Know. Yeah. Great conversation with Johnny, and uh, it's coming up a little bit. And um, we realize talking to him talking to other guests who come on the podcast, what we're doing with this podcast, we learn a lot and we are learning that people are similar. People are people. Very different people who a lot of similar things are jumping out at us. And I think when you sit and talk to individuals like this, um, you start to learn that. I've learned that through doing my show, that uh, a lot of listeners, for instance, um, very similar. They have a lot of similar stuff going on. They probably have more in common than they realize. I do think that as human beings, we have more in common than we realize. And the the infamous they, they at all. Oh, they. Yeah, they at all. They don't want the, you to get your belly button pierced. Yeah. No, listen to me. There have been studies that studied groups of people, yeah. right? And especially groups of people that seem to be polarizing each other. There's actually a whole department at, at Columbia. There's some guy who runs like a difficult conversations lab or something. I forget if you're that person. I forgot your name. Um, someone should look it up. Uh, anyway, that they at all, (laughs) bunch of researchers have discovered that there's often more commonalities between people, between different groups than even people who identify with a certain group. Does that make sense? And so what are we doing by boxing ourselves in with some of these identities, right? Like, I think we have a lot more in common than we even give ourselves credit for. I was thinking about this when we had Johnny Marr on the schedule, Yeah, right? You were very excited about it. I was excited, but I, 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 I think I was like really busy with patients that week and I hadn't quite, I hadn't prepared mm-hmm. for that interview <laughs> yet. And when I started to prepare for it, 
and to read up on him and try to get him in my mind before uh, we spoke to him, I got nervous. I was like, holy shit, we're interviewing Johnny Marr. Right before the interview, it hit me. And at the, at the end of it, I will say, um, I, I realized more and more and more, the more we talk to people, we really are just people. Yeah. And people, we all have a lot of the same concerns. We have a lot of the same anxieties. We have a lot of the same struggles. I mean, I'm not talking, I mean, there's like privilege and class and race and everything and gender and everyone is going to have different struggles, right? But as a human race, we all have struggles. We all struggle, no matter who you are, no matter how put together you appear, no matter how well life seems to be going for you, there is an internal battle constantly with people. And we're dealing with a lot of the same stuff. Like, a, like I don't know how to express it. That, that doesn't seem similar on the exterior. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. So let's say you don't realize that we all have these similarities, that maybe we're all going through some things. Is it, the, is it just as easy as, hey, I'm not alone for real? Because that's comforting to me knowing others are struggling. I don't yeah. want other people to struggle, but you know, it's comforting to know other people are going through some similar things. Well, I think that um, life is messy and we're all a little rough around the edges, Yeah, but we're always trying to not be, right? <laughs> and we're always learning and growing, but I think sometimes, and we've talked about this before, that sometimes we send our representative out you know, first, like we don't put our self out in the world at first. We're kind of, it's like the, it's like Amy's representative of herself. It's like dating. (laughs) Yeah. Meet, meet the best version of me. Yeah, that's right. And I do find it inspiring when, yeah, I mean, I love learning about people's achievements and, and how they overcome conflict or how they overcome struggle or, or whatever. But I also love it when people are a little vulnerable or like honest, you know, and I just think that's really important to remember that, you know, we all have assholes, we all have belly buttons, and there's a lot more similarities between groups than you think. so many questions I want to ask you. I, I, sure. I, I, I want to talk first about the new record. I've been playing it on my, on my radio show. I love it. Nice work. Oh, great. Uh, Thank you. Yeah. And um, I want to talk about Fever Dreams. It's out on February 25th. Can you talk about the experience of making this record? We've asked a few artists that we've talked to about how they recorded and dealt with this pandemic while, while making the, their records. Yeah, sure, sure. Well, the thing about it was, was, was that... Um, I started making it just before the pandemic happened. Uh, it just so happened it was time for me to make a make a record. 
you know, I'm either, if I'm not making a record, I'm doing something, you know, uh, around it. And I, that's what I do. I'm, you know, I make, I make records. I don't, I don't wait for inspiration to strike or for five years of experience to happen or anything like that, which, which is a valid, a valid reason. But uh, I, I've just been doing this from being a kid really. So it's, it was time to make an album and then I kind of go, what's it going to be about? What is it I have to say and, and do that? So I'd started it, I guess in, in the winter, just before the pandemic, I guess I was 19 or something, I think. And uh, I'd started writing a couple of songs and then that got interrupted then because the Bond film happened uh, so I went off to do that for a few months, couple of months. And uh, whilst that was happening, you know, as you, you probably can imagine there's a lot of downtime on movies. So in downtime, I wrote a couple of songs there and then I got back to the record. And as I got, so the reason I'm telling you this is it was already called Fever Dreams Parts 1 to 4. That was just a title. I just, sometimes the ideas happen and, and you think they're great straight away and you live with them and they're still great. And then other times, I know myself well enough to get to kind of go, okay, that's what it is. And then other times you're kind of scrabbling around, it's right at the 11th hour and whatever. But um, the, the title Fever Dreams Part 1 to 4 happened. And I thought, yeah, that's pretty good. And um, I had no idea what the sort of, what the what parts 1 to 4 was about, but I thought, well, find out what that's about. Did the Bond movie, finished that. And then just as that was, finishing up the pandemic hit so I was already writing and I already had the title so in other words the title didn't really wasn't born out of the pandemic so two things happened a lot of me a lot of people have been asking me you know in the media well how was it not being at a play well I wouldn't have been playing anyway because I when I make a record I just kind of go all in and that's what I'm doing so I in a way, I was very extremely fortunate that I had a kind of, you know, something to occupy my time anyway while that while that was going on. Plus, uh, I work out of a, a big old factory on the outskirts of Manchester, and it was completely empty, like a ghost town. The parking lot of, of those huge parking lots, like, you know, this kind of scale like outside a, a a large arena, maybe completely empty except my little mini, and. Uh, <laughs> That was every day. I wasn't really supposed to be in there, but because there was no other, there was no danger. There's no other people in there. I just let myself in every day. So I was in this huge space on my own, and um, that was interesting. It had a vibe, gave me an atmosphere, and it and it gave me a. I was sneaking out, and it, it you know, I, I was clocking in at the factory and working long long hours. So it was a quite a surreal experience, but. Again, and I guess the last bit I could say about it is definitely not wanting to write a record, a pandemic record. Like, I didn't want to sing about stores being closed and some people being vaccinated and some people not and all of that. But but I tend to sing, a lot of my songs are sort of tend to be more and more about perception now and about, I guess, the human condition. Like, confusing, because I, I think mentally the business of being a human being, I think, is sometimes quite confusing, usually to do with pesky other people. <laughs> and um, uh, and that interests me, you know, psychology of it and how, how I perceive things. And then I, I I take a punt really that my audience, who I think are quite like me, or they certainly are interested in what I do and stuff, I, I assume that we think along the same lines. So going through the pandemic, I didn't have to talk about we're in a pandemic, but the whole 24-7 of life experience felt like a fever dream, I, you know, not just at night. And um, so those feelings of this is weird suspension, it feeling like a sci-fi movie, you know, and then what I was watching, seeing on the television news, particularly in the United States, 
mirrored as often is the case by my own country, but seeing the Black Lives Matter movement and the what was going on in DC and the, the presidency thing and all of this business, there was a lot to write about in terms of perception and confusion. So a lot of the songs deal with those themes, hopefully, hopefully in, a, in an interesting way that doesn't telegraph things too much and that gives lots of scope for people to read into. And, and um, you know, it's been noted that, you know, a lot, a lot of the songs are kind of wrap, wrap themselves up in a sort of sense of either defiance or jubilant kind of positivity against the adversity, which I think is probably the case, really. You know, I didn't even have to try to do that. I think just naturally I'm someone who, if I'm going to talk about feelings of suspension or feelings of, I mean, like, okay, so one song, like one of the lyrics is like, uh, lay awake too long, dark has come, hope has gone. I've seen some glimmering things, seen the vision in things. I'm so dumb, don't you know? That was a feeling that I was telling myself at 3am and 6am and I, I think quite a lot of other people might have been able to relate to. But then the chorus is this very jubilant chorus that's a spirit, power and soul, which to me is just a slogan that I couldn't believe hadn't been written before. And, um, you know, I tried to naturally offer some sort of kind of, because the music felt quite hopeful. Most of the songs, if I deal with those issues, I try not to leave it, you know, things are shit, the end. <laughs> I want it to be a good listen and I think about my audience quite a lot when, when I'm writing and I, I, you know, there's a real kind of feeling of uh, community in my audience I think which is amazing to me and uh, so a lot of stuff when I sing I, I tend to sing we, us um, rather than me, I um, so I think that's what happened naturally the way it just rolled out but so yeah I was really at the effect of what was going on in the world who couldn't be but I, I just couldn't be that reductive as to make a, a pandemic record, you know. Yeah. When you talk about that, that it's time to make a record, is that is that you have this internal clock? Do you, do you actually have a schedule? And then when you are doing all these other projects with other artists, does this influence that schedule? Like, look, I've worked with this band. I've worked with this composer. I've done this project. Yeah. It's time for me. It's time for me to make a record for my fans. So my role, one of the things that I've learned over the years in every band I've been in, was that, you know, you, 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 the band are on the road, right? The poor old singer, usually, you know, in the past, has gone through, you know, turmoil to come up with 12 songs of, you know, of uh, inner expression. And the last thing they want to think about is lyrics for a while. And then we do a, lot, a, a bunch of gigs and then I, I start going, hey, I think we should do a new album, guys. I've got some riffs. You know, if you ask the Cribs or you ask the there or Modest Mouse, um, I mean, I happen to think that's kind of handy having someone like that in the band, but it's probably quite annoying. Um, and uh, but this is, I, I'm, a, I'm a record freak. I, I love the process. That's not to say that it's a cinch. The Smiths were very prolific. That was part of RMO. That was one of the things that Morrissey and I had in common. That we would rather be making new music than anything else. I mean, particularly in my case, I didn't, I didn't like touring until really late in my career, I hated touring. Um, it was only really when I got in Modest Mouse that I started to really love being on the road. Now you can't sort of stop me, but... What changed for you? What I, uh, I was really obsessed with uh, being in the studio. And when Modest Mouse made our, the, the album I made with them, the first album, We Were Dead Before the Ship Even Sank, we really uh, exhausted and explored every avenue. We, we went into the studio with 19 very complex songs all great, hard to drop any of them. And I really felt, right, okay, we've rung this out. So, 
okay, so being on the road, I wasn't thinking, oh, I want to make a record. I want to join another, but I didn't want to be with another band. And that collection of musicians was such was so unique. The chemistry in that band was so great. And it was so funny and creative. And for me also, it was very new because I, I found myself in an American group. Uh, and there is a difference, you know, and um, I, li- I was living in Portland and uh, it was a, a, just an incredible time. So, and then plus a big part of it as well was that um, a few years before that, I'd, I'd, I'd really, really got into running in a big way. I hadn't drunk alcohol or any shit like that for years. So, so it gave me an opportunity to, uh, my lifestyle became ex- very extreme in it. I was at the right age to be able to do it. So I was I was like running eighteen miles before a show and and because um, I didn't drink the rest of the band did and stuff like I I, I found myself with a, you know some time to peel off on my own and and it was so exciting I was away from my family for for the first time in years so I was kind of had a lot of time on my hands and um, I was getting out and having these real doing running those long distances I was seeing Atlanta like I'd never seen it before I know Georgia really well I know San Francisco like I never knew it before I know Seattle I mean and then living in Portland. I, now, a big part of being in that band was my relationship with Portland, Oregon. Just came out, all these things came, all these things happened a few years before. Uh, I'd met Elliot Smith a couple of times and Elliot had been telling me about Portland. And it's, a lot of British musicians will tell you this, particularly back then, Portland was a place that you kind of had a day off in and you kind of went, oh, this place is great. Oh, I always forget <laughs> about this. And then off you go somewhere else. Oh, I must come back. And of course, Modest Mouse, is how, how we're doing this, you know, Joe Plummer and the band being really so central to the Portland scene at that time. Uh, it was all all one thing. Modest Mouse, the songs, the album we'd done, these new interesting set of people, including uh, their friends, wives, girlfriends. It's a whole new world of me. I walked into a room of complete strangers just on it for an ex- a musical experiment, and the music felt really good. Yeah, and, the, ex- uh, the experiment went really well. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So it all went. It was. It was really interesting. It was a really interesting time of my life. So, so that's why I, I ended up loving shows. And th- those shows were di- uh, different experience to shows I'd done before. I mean, like you know, with that that group of musicians, each one of them, I could go on. But uh, we would do. I'd never been in a band before where the singer starts singing to start singing an imaginary song we haven't written yet. And we have to kind of imagine what it is he's hearing behind us. And we just kind of build something. Usually it's completely the opposite way around where you've got a song and you're waiting for a guy to, or woman to, <laughs> to finish the lyrics three months later. Isaac Brock occasionally would just go into this thing he was hearing in his head and we were kind of going, we need to kind of make that. It was an incredibly creative time. An amazing band. It's great. We saw him on Saturday uh, at Showbox. We put on a, uh, I'm part of a children's hospital benefit show and uh, Modest Mouse donated their time, their energy. uh, And they Uh came out and played the Lonesome Crowded West uh, beginning to end. And they've never, Modest Mouse never done that. And from court, I swear to God, that's since this pandemic began, that's the most I've seen a crowd of jubilant people uh, in two years. It was from... I'm two seconds into their set. Everyone lost their shit. Everyone just, it was such a moment in Seattle that uh, I will never forget it. So they, just, yeah. a, just a heads up, just, they, they sound very good right now. They, they just, they no, were I, I know I've been hearing. Yeah. I, I'm, you know, I was, I was hearing from Isaac. We spoke 
last week or I think. And um, you know, I've heard some of his the music he's working on, and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm a a part of the brotherhood. I think you know, That's I'm right. very happy to be to be part of it. And, you know, it's, uh, it's are they going to call you up? Like, They're going to be like, hey, we need a little. Well, you, he did. That be, that, yeah, okay. That's what I'm saying, yeah, he did. Okay, yeah. then. Yeah, is that a yes? Is that a you know, geography. Hey, he's doing his thing. I'm doing mine. I'm, you know, hey, do you know what, John? I, I've got a double album that isn't actually even out yet. So, <laughs> pace myself with with what you're doing. I don't you, want to get too know, far ahead. Matter. I'm we're into 2023 now, friend. <laughs> I'm a workaholic, but that's taking things to to the next level, man. Who, who knows? I always say Modest Mouse is the only band I'd rejoin. Oh, that's great. Mm. Yeah, that's man, very telling. You know, we, we we have this really good. Well, anyway, I'm cracking on a little bit now, so I better actually get around to it one day. Yeah, now you were talking earlier about um, having a sense of perception. And we've been talking about this a lot in our house about, um, you know, what's the saying? If you change your mind about something, the something changes. Or if uh, you have a sense of optimism, it's actually uh, part of our evolution, that we couldn't keep continuing on as human beings if we didn't have a sense of optimism. You know, if we didn't think things will get better, what would be the fucking point, right? And I just sure, wondered, yeah. you were talking about creating your music and your albums during this time, and a lot of people we talk to will talk about, yeah, I had to send the song over the internet, or yeah, we had to each record separately in our home studios, and then, you know, they talk about the logistics of the deliverables of the album. But what I found fascinating, how you answered that question was about your perception about perception and sort of a feeling in the air. Um, I wondered if you had more to say about that, just how you perceive your role as an artist and as someone who has something to say. Well, you know, Amy, you've got to sing about something, right? So that's right. um, And I think, you know, I was I was always interested in, I guess, perception. Uh, the senses. One of the, I, th- I think, one of the reasons that makes speaking personally made me uh, want to be an artist was that I, I was a uh, someone as a kid who, who felt that there was something. Be- I mean, I, okay, esoteric alert. I just was someone who always felt that there was something behind the, the regular senses. I felt there was something more. I always felt there was like, something more going on. Uh, I think some of that might have been down to I was around a lot of religious iconography growing up in an extremely Catholic household as a kid in the inner city. There was a few kind of weird things that went on. Like one of my cousins died, a, a kid, a couple of kids died when, when I was little, which was heavy. Uh, and there was a lot of stuff going on. Um, I, I think, you know, without being glib about it, I think my family were... were were no strangers to the spook was the way I used to put it, you know. Uh, looking back on it now as an adult, there was a, definitely a sense of uh, esoteric and um, things, you know, the afterlife and all, uh, not necessarily, well, a couple of my aunties, I, I grew up around a lot. My, my mother was from a family of 14 and uh, dad, my dad was a family of five. I was the first English, I was first kid born out of a lot of it. So there was a lot of, I was surrounded by a lot of young adults half the age I am now, who had moved over to Manchester and um, and they were amazing people. And there was kind of, there was a bit of a spiritualist sort of vibe going on there, I think. And uh, I, I was picking up a lot of this stuff. And uh, and you, you just never really shake that off. And then when I was in high school, 
and kind of learn about truancy and playing hooky, I think you call it in your country, right? I used to just bunk off school all the time. But because I live in a rainy city like Seattle, um, I the, the, the coolest building was, was the Central Library, which is an amazing circular building. And that was a place where you could go and hang out. So I used to just end up, I started off going reading the news, the music papers there, really educating myself through, luckily for me, the people I like to follow, like Patti Smith and David Bowie, um, Kraftwerk, people like that, they they had a lot of literary influences. So through them, I started then going, oh, okay, who's this William Burroughs guy and Aldous Huxley and Oscar Wilde and all of this. And then I was just really kind of a curious kind of person. And uh, I got into Aldous Huxley, then in my teens, and then through Aldous Huxley, I got into Carl Jung and then I, reading about Carl Jung and archetypes and collective unconscious and that really got me quite into psychology then and it all sort of jived with this sort of, I thought, oh, okay, this sort of stuff, this esoteric stuff has been explored by people much, much, much cleverer than I am that I could learn some stuff off and then that led me down a, a, some roads, you know, as a, I read about, you know, that led to like P.D. Auspensky and, and the more esoteric, the better. Madame Blavatsky and the Theosophical Society and Gurdjieff and all of this kind of esoteric sort of thinking, just as a hobby. So that just became an interest. And to get back to your question, though, Amy, about modern times, so all of that is in the background for me, really. And and I think where I draw on those interests when they work, you know, in a song context, the, the test for me is if I can sing about perception and I think like someone in my audience First, it's got to be a good listen. I'm a songwriter. So, you, you know, sometimes it's on a more mundane level. But sometimes if I, if I go down that road and I think, well, there's people in my audience who, who are going to find that interesting, then that, then that's kind of a thing that I do. So, you know, I've got a song on, my, on the first solo album called Generate, Generate. And it's about hyperactivity. And it's about thinking too quickly and about talking too quickly and making quick connections. And that it's an upbeat song what I'm doing is I'm paying tribute to hyperactivity. You know, it's got I blaze by and I wonder why. Calculate, calculate, calculate. Um, you know, I've got know how, I've got a know now, calculate. And then cogito ergo dumb, which is a kind of a word play on, on um, Descartes, I think, therefore I am, but I'm saying I think, therefore I'm dumb. It's about thinking too much. Mm-hmm. And this is fun shit to me. And my audience know I'm sort of probably singing about myself, but also some of them can relate to it. You know, song on the new record called All These Days. I had this music that was quite atmospheric and felt quite moody and a, a sense of portent about it. You know, it's like imposing. I won't say doom, but it's quite, quite heavy. And I was thinking about people in my audience, you know, I'll, I'll pitch people out there in the last couple of years. And the, so the, these words came like a, a drinking with my shadow, escape the sensory, another day tomorrow, tomorrow endlessly. And that to me is like I'm thinking particularly about a woman who may be in my audience or a person who sat at the kitchen table, should have gone to bed a couple of hours before during the pandemic, a bottle and a wine, a bottle and a half of wine in, uh, worried about when the kid's going to go back to school, the family business, someone getting sick. That's the kind of thing I'm I'm sort of singing about. And without telegraphing it, I mean, I'm telegraphing it now, but, (laughs) you know, I'm, I'm hoping when I sing it, or when people hear it, they kind of go, ah, oh, okay, yeah, I think I know what he's talking about. Songs are an amazing canvas for telling these stories, and sometimes they, they don't have to be really telegraphed. Some people are great at those narratives. If I get braver, or maybe as I develop, or maybe once next album or whenever, I'll, I'll be more obvious about my narratives. But 
I mean, every song on the record has got something really meaningful to me, you know. And, and another thing about being a songwriter, they have to sing well and they have to sound good. You can wreck a song by being too explicit, too profound. You know, The Only Living Boy in New York. I mean, it's about something and it's about Paul Simon missing Art Garfunkel, but I only know that because of his interviews. I often have got so many examples about talking about perception in my songs. That is what interests me from all of those books that I was talking about. Uh, yeah. I think of Paul Simon later thinking, I really miss that guy that much. I, I... <laughs> That's right. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah, a better yeah. time. I like that though. I, would, I, yeah. Yeah. I like that. Like at some point, those two were that close that brought me joy. Cause you know, as I got older, I grew up on Simon and Garfunkel. My parents played Cat Stevens and Simon and Garfunkel. And <clears throat> I had a chance to take my mom to see Simon and Garfunkel before she passed. And it was, uh, she's, she was pretty sick. And it's amazing what music can do. She was dealing with lung cancer. And uh, when they started playing, you would never know. My mom was up. She's like hand in the air. And yeah. seeing, seeing like oh, her gosh. two heroes she grew up with, she, I mean, that gave her life. It was, it's amazing. That's one of the things about pop culture, rock music, okay? That I like going to art galleries. I've had some profound moments at the Guggenheim and the Tate Modern stuff, but you don't behave like that. Oh, well, if you do, you get, you'd <laughs> get be crazy. <laughs> but, you know, that communal experience and what music yeah. does to you and the history of it. I mean, I'm asked on that subject, I get asked a lot about, uh, so, Johnny, why do you think rock music isn't as important anymore? Okay, why do you think it's not as important? And what you've described is a reason why music is just as important. What yeah. a song can do or a show can do, the relationship between a person and a song is amazing. You know, that will never diminish. Mm -hmm. What really the question is there is like, how come it helped stop the Vietnam War and now no one gives a shit? So it's not really about music, about what rock music is. Rock music is like lost its potency. None of that. There's kids forming bands, particularly with more girls in and more diverse musicians every day of the week. The guitar sales have gone through the roof more than any time in their history. But it's just simply the culture being what it is with the digital revolution is that if you're binging a Netflix for five hours, that's five hours you weren't listening to a Tom Petty record or a, you know, Hives record or whatever. You know what I mean? So that it's just culturally we've just we've just got more competition but anyway i just thought what you what you described about your experience for your mum is a really great example of a thing that only music can do because it has a communal experience too you know yeah i think you know i think about our nervous system a lot and i brought this up on the podcast a lot that music literally is a vibration and it's a vibration that you can feel and so if you're in a room with people you're all feeling the same vibration in your bones, like in your body. So what that does to your central nervous system at the same time as the entire group of people, never mind, you know, what it might mean for you or what it might remind you of, you're all having a collective experience on the same vibration. Yeah, <laughs> like I, a literal vibration, not some like, oh, you know, the energy, blah, blah, woo, woo, whatever, but like actual vibration that you're all feeling at the same time when, before the pandemic <clears throat> we saw american utopia for i don't know the third time it's to me one of the most communal amazing live shows i've ever experienced naive melody came on and i didn't think in my lifetime i would see that live i hugged 
a very uh, uh, older woman to my right. We just looked at each other as we were both moving at the same time and just hugged each other. <laughs> and I don't think yeah. I, I have ever done that at a show. But we were so, like the, 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 the energy in that audience, it, it collected everyone's history with that song. It collected it, your, your current experience. You're actually seeing David Byrne perform at, his, I think, his peak. And you're all having that same, as Amy says, this vibration. And so to me, that gave me... Well, even David Burns says it. He says like it's a it's like a flat tire. You fill the tire up. I, I heard him on a yeah. podcast say this. And when you when you're around people, when you're having a shared experience, and then the tire gets flatter and flatter as you move on, you got to pump it back up again, and then you're able to move the car. I always think of that as live music. He was explaining the condition of interaction. You have to have interaction to con- continue to move forward. Yeah, yeah. Hey, first off, uh, I've got to say, John, had you done that? Uh, if you, how do you behave like that in my country? You would have been thrown in prison and uh, <laughs> sent to the tower. How dare you? Uh, um, but, I think she approached uh, me. I think it's the same, no, same deal. Same well, she deal would have been thrown in prison. She, no, no, no she, she would have been thrown in prison. Um, we never do that. Uh, but uh, no, I remember David Byrne saying that music is hope, which I think is quite a big statement, uh, which was, is true. I have, uh, I mean, on the subject of that vibration. So, so many years when I was playing shows, what I was saying earlier, I didn't, re- I didn't like touring. A lot of it was because I was just wanted to just make records. But in the, the Smiths touring situation was fraught for a, lo- a lot of reasons, which was a shame. And um, I used to get very nervous and stuff. So that, but when I started going out with my own band, I say Modest Mouse got me into the the culture of it a bit. I love being in the band, but. Uh, you know, so for many years I was on, on the side. I, I was at the side of the stage, okay, because I'm the guitar player and I'm doing my thing. And you would think that moving to the center of the stage and being the the main person that all the pressures on would be actually make you more nervous. But in my case, I don't know. Maybe it's some weird false bravado, or the but uh, it, made, it made me more comfortable uh, because you're in more you're in control of the vibe. It's a little like a stand up. So if something goes on in the audience, I'll just talk. I'll engage with the person in the audience or you know, whereas before I was doing my thing and I wasn't in the centre, that surprised me, you know, that being the central, it's not, and I don't mean like adore me, adore me, adore me, I, I don't do for that reason, but being, being the ringmaster in a way, give, give me more control. I, I'd never get nervous on, on stage. But before I go on, it, it's occurred to me many times that, because uh, you were talking about vibration, what I do for a living is I before I go on, I literally plug into electricity and then I go really loud, really, really very, very loud. And sometimes in very, very big spaces. And that's a pretty powerful experience. If, if I think about it too much, I would psych myself out and just forget the words <laughs> to all the songs. And, uh, but it's a, it has occurred to me quite a few times when I get myself sort of psyched up before I go on, I have this relationship, which sounds very corny, but, sue me with with my guitar i look at this thing and i go wow i've had this a friend like this since i was 10 10 years of age and here we go again i'd be kind if i went out there and i forgot you that wouldn't work <laughs> uh, so thank you and i've been in the put really putting some some pretty kind of tight spots sometimes like when i played with talking heads i was only 24 and nervous as hell and like okay better help me do something impressive right here <laughs> And um, and then I plug in and I go out. And another reason why uh, I enjoy playing live so much, there is the communal thing. It is I'm um, being in the middle now and singing my songs. I've got 
a great everyone knows I've got a really great band. I'm literally surrounded by this electricity and being in the middle. So when I did a live album, I mixed it in 2015. I got really, really obsessive OCD about mixing that because I wanted it to sound like it sounds like to me being in the middle of the band, but also like being right in the middle of the audience as well. And uh, there was all these technical reasons why you can't do both and it's got to be this and then you've got to compromise that and the other. And I just drove everyone crazy uh, <laughs> doing it. But I'm, I'm telling you, it's uh, on the right night, you know, and when people ask me, you know, what ambitions I've got left and, you know, why I'm still doing it. And it's, it's not, not to do with, you know, kind of tangible success. It's to try and have some of those incredible moments where you just kind of try, lift it out yourself and you forget yourself. And the audience helped me do that. You know, I, I always think we're work, kind of working together on this stuff, you know. Well, it's funny you bring up vibration. The first time I think a guitar affected me in a way I'd never been affected. I was always lyrics and what a song meant was how soon is now. Like I feel that to this day. That it, yeah. it hit me in a place where I was in a bit, I was in a very bad place as a, uh, when I was younger. And I remember hearing that and talk about a vibration. Like it just, yeah. it, it wouldn't even matter what was being sung to me. It, it just that, 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 and it's thank God a long song. Well, that's amazing. <laughs> right. No, I mean, well, well, when this is an unusual sound, and it was a vibe. It wasn't designed. It was part designed, but we kind of got on a roll and that that thing with that big kind of throb thing that's going on, that kind of happened at about 2.30 a.m. when I was feeling the track wasn't really happening. Seriously, I've been, been working on the track all day. The rest of the band, as was as was their prerogative, left me and the producer and the engineer because, you know, me dicking around with tunings for five hours, I, 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 I find it fascinating. <laughs> And that happened in, you know, that moment of inspiration was a product of uh, of circumstance. And it was always back in the day there. The budget was so little. We had to get that thing done by midnight. And, of course, the next band was coming in at 10 a.m. And so at, like, 9.55, <laughs> we were wrapping it up. And... Uh, but I remember when we were when it was all coming together and we were mixing that thing, we started mixing about 6 a.m. to get it all done. When I left the building, it was like the building was, was vibrating. It wow. was like it, it was shaking. I don't mean with volume, with that thing, yeah. with that pulse, and it's kind of sexy. You know, you can get a bit carried away with this stuff, but, you know, if you read about what voodoo is, what voodoo represents, it's not really that, that much of a surprise that, you know, a, electric guitar music sounds so good in when you hear it in the southern states of your fine country, you know, and then there's all the kind of, voodoo uh, mythology and it's you know it's electric voodoo isn't it really <laughs> to, to get really very classic rock about this you just made it better that, that whole description actually totally makes me electric like electric voodoo electric voodoo hey uh, Johnny, that's the title you, of your next record yeah that's right you're welcome um i wanted to get i want to talk to you about running again and getting back to that so i've been a runner since uh, uh i was 10 and for me it was a mental health exercise before i realized i just realized how good I felt after running and how empty my mind was when I was running, like every voice and anxiety that I was dealing with just disappeared. And I played sports all my life, but I've been a runner for, for quite a while. And I, I wanted to talk to you about that. We had a really nice talk with our friend, Ben Gibbard, uh, who's an ultra marathoner. And I just went trail running with him not too long ago. That is a whole nother beast, by the way. The, the trail running is the ultra. Yeah. I am not there yet, but I've done a few marathons over the years. I just did Portland and I ran the New York marathon and I know you did as well. So, so for me, that was, 
my favorite race I've ever run, and I can't imagine one being better uh, for all the reasons I'm sure. I think you enjoyed yours. What, what was what for you, marathon wise? Was that was that a peak for you? Was that was that a goal? I, I think I saw your wife uh, had had signed you up without you knowing. Yeah, that was right. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, I mean, I was running marathon distances before that. You know, the thing with with marathons as I'm sure you know, is, you know, especially if you're doing your first proper chip marathon, you, you're advised, the advice is that you don't run a marathon distance. You get near the marathon distance to not psych yourself out. And then on the day of, you go for your personal best. Yeah. Well, that just sounded like a bad idea to me. I was like, <laughs> this was before I knew I was going to do one. I was like, if I'm going to run a marathon, I want to know when I'm dying that I've already, that I've already done this thing. Right. So right. I was, I was off doing those 26 and a half miles, on my own anyway. And in, in truth, frankly, I found that I prefer doing that. I'm, I prefer running on my own. I prefer doing the distances. Mm. I'm so sociable that every person who stuck their hand out to high five me or whatever, I was like, hey, how are you doing? Oh, hey, a little ch- all these little children and everything. And I was like, oh, okay. And um, it was just a distraction. And then people like running, <laughs> some guy went past me like dressed as a guitar and I was kind of like, hey. And, um, all, all those people, I just frankly, I, I'm a real people person, but it was like 49,000 really annoying people. So, <laughs> which is which is it. more, which is just too many. It's, it was. Uh, I, I've run a couple with my friends, and that yeah, that, that was just a bad idea. I just get really pissy. So um, no, I like the I like the solitude of it, the solitary nature of it. it it's more there's something. I don't know something meditative about it for me, and and yeah, but I, yeah, I'm really I'm really glad I did it. Of course, the thing with running with with me is that I'll, I'll say this because maybe you know it's, it's sort of something that someone else wouldn't say maybe, but sometimes musicians or people who are interested in music they, they ask me about not drinking alcohol and running and all of that, and there's a slight assumption that a I've got some kind of abstinence thing going on or remorse or you know, particularly journalists in, uh, really want to know whether me and Ozzy Osbourne dangled my children off a roof in the 80s. I, I don't have drink and drugs. I have lots of drink and drugs heaven stories, okay? But I don't have drink, drink and drugs hell stories. I, you know, <laughs> do I think that sometimes it would have been a better idea to go to bed? Yeah. But uh, uh, but my point is is I, I, I'm not, you know, I, look, I'm not someone who, who's who's kind of can't be around people partying and all of that. So my deal with drinking, I got to a point in my life where I was just like, uh, I had a couple of friends who were teetotal and it just looked like a great idea. So there's a thing in, uh, there's a, there's a thing in psychology called appetitive thinking and aversive thinking. So appetitive comes from the word appetite to have an appetite for, I didn't realize this at the time, but what I did was, what's called appetitive thinking, instead of going, oh, I'm going to give up drinking, I'm going to give up smoking weed, I'm going to give up cigarettes and stuff like that. What I did was, instead of running away from that, I just run towards something. Instead of giving up these fun things, or that weren't very good for me, I gave myself the gift of sobriety and being being able to run marathons and feeling better and and you know all of that i don't have a puritanical morality about it my band like a few beers now and again and over christmas my family will be drinking some champagne and all of that and i'll you know i'm I'm cool with that i can stay like you know i can stay up till 5 a.m with 
with Eddie Vedder. He's a fascinating guy. And if it's interesting and funny, I'll hang. If the if someone is telling me the same shit five times, <laughs> um, and that's the way I'm about it. And then, but then, uh, so I just thought that looks like a pretty good thing, and I really I like that. My friends, one had done the program, and and another was kind of anti the program and done their own thing, and uh, I like that they they could run and they looked pretty good for their age and, and, and they didn't have to apologize for saying some silly shit the night before. So I'll just all sounded good to me. And then being the age of ours, it just seemed more progressive to me. You know, uh, I didn't know straight edge was a thing. And then when I discovered that, I was like that to me, you give me a musician in their f- later period of their career, hanging around the last to leave the dressing room, hanging around their buddies, dressing room, drinking the rider versus a Fagazi. That just looks more progressive to me. It looks more modern. Looks It looks more uh, productive. It actually just looks more radical. So th- there's all these things. I, n- I know there's a new age now. Things have changed. It's been like a long time since uh, I got into this new different way of living. But I just, I'm, I'm kind of, a, I'm all or nothing kind of guy. So I, I do all of this stuff the way I used to do drugs. You know, I'm like, uh, I'm not puritanical about it, but I like, okay, let me do it to the nth degree, you know? So it was great. And then I also, um, I'm just saying this, if there's anyone out there who've not heard, not heard this kind of stuff before, uh, I read there was a, an article once, it was a, a guy, kind of notorious villain, really, truth be told, uh, prisoner, John McVicker, he was a, a robber in the 60s, 70s in, in the UK, famous guy, he was in prison, and, he, and then he started writing, and he was quite a good writer, you know, he wrote some pretty interesting books. But I remember years ago reading him saying, like, when you run, you have to be, you have to be puritanical. You have to get up at 7 a.m. and you have to like give up all this stuff. He said, look, when you start running, you can drink more. You can eat as much pizza as you want. You can stay up late. You can have as much sex as you want. When you run, you can do all of that. You just find that you just don't really want to because you feel pretty, <laughs> pretty good. But you can do that, you know. Yeah. And I think it's kind of useful sometimes to uh, to try and break those misconceptions about being puritanical and about it being abstinent and about uh, denying yourself stuff. I just say it as like I, 25 years ago, or whatever, I just gave myself the gift of being, I think, more radical. You know, I think my, my words got better. My work got better. I can't really imagine doing what I do now behind a hangover, getting up and playing with an orchestra and doing movies and stuff like that. Well, deprivation and shame are not a good road, no matter who you are. And listening to you talk, it, it sounds that you didn't, you don't have any of that shame, like, oh, I'm not supposed to do this, and oh, it's shameful if I do this, and then the deprivation that comes from, sometimes when people try to stop drinking or, or go sober, there's a lot of shame involved, and then there's a lot of deprivation, and they're like, you know, holding on, white knuckling it, we call it, um, yeah. for dear life, but, you know, if you can move towards this feeling of what are you adding into your life or what nourishment do you have? You're adding in running, you're adding in better sleep, you're adding in, you can, you know, you're going to poop better for fuck's sake, you know, (laughs) you're going to, and, and not to say that any of that stuff is bad or wrong, or you shouldn't be doing that. But I think what I'm hearing you say is that there's no, you don't have a sense of deprivation and shame. You just had a clear path or choice or something that appealed to you 
it wasn't. I know I'm sounding very. I can sound very black and white about this. It wasn't that easy to be honest. That first one, mm. to be honest, when I think about it, because I was like, I'm going to get so bored. Well, I think what I'm trying to say is creativity sometimes comes out of being bored. Some people, I've had people talk to me about quitting drinking, and they're like, "Well, don't you get bored?" It's like, "Well, being bored's kind of a pretty good idea." You know why? Because I write songs, I do stuff. It, but don't be afraid of being bored. That, that, that's the thing. So, you know, hey, um, John Lennon's about to write I'm the Walrus, so he thinks, oh, fuck it, I'll go to the bar. <laughs> Doesn't get done. Right. Picasso. Picasso's like, oh, you know what? Oh, I'm, gonna, like, I'm just going to get wrecked. <laughs> you know, uh, it, it's the wellspring of boredom. Is a, it kind of out of necessity is the wellspring of activity. Even if you're not an artistic person, you know what? You clean out your garage. When I when I quit cigarettes, that was tough. You know, I used to yeah. love cigarettes. My friend said to me, uh, "Oh man," he said, "Oh, I, I, I uh, how's it going?" I was like, "Oh man," you know, I'm like, you know, I'm irritated. I was like, "Oh, I was fixated on on that kind of oh, what do I do with myself?" He, my friend said to me, "Oh man, I used to oh, I really missed that because it was like taking speed." I was like, I was running around and I was like, I, I soundproofed my, my rehearsal space and I was this and I was that. And I kind of went, huh, that's pretty interesting. So what was, I just depends how you frame it. What was seemingly like agitation, I di- actually discovered was this surfeit of oxygen that was in my bloodstream that I didn't have when I was filling it full of all these chemicals. And suddenly I had all this oxygen and I didn't know what to do with it. And I was like, this is like a, a, a natural high. It's like a vitamin boost. It's like an energy boost. It's not denial. It's, it's, you're not denying yourself anything. You're giving yourself self the gift of, of something. That's the kind of way it works. It's the way it worked for me. You know, maybe I just tricked myself, maybe. Perception. Yeah. So, Johnny, uh, you're going to be out here in Seattle August 20th, uh, right next door to my other place of work, KEXP. You're going to be at Climate Pledge Arena. You're playing with the Killers. I know KEXP, sure, yeah. Uh, yeah, we're at that. I've, I've not played that. You know, I've not, some of those places. It's new. So they, they, they gutted this thing, and now it's this, it's a hockey arena. It's this billion-dollar building, and uh, it's going to be a great place to play, especially in the summer. They're going to have it dialed in by now. I also wanted to mention this uh, really quick before we go, this uh, James Bond film and working with Hans Zimmer. And, and I actually thought, uh, what an amazing experience. But then I think I'm talking to you, so... Is the, I have to ask this question. Is this the first James Bond movie you've worked on? Because with you, the answer may not be yes. It may be like, yeah, I've done no, a few. No, it's, <laughs> no, no, it's, no. I mean, it, that was a big deal for me, you know. Oh, good. I, I bet. Too, of course. Playing the guitar. You know, especially being a British kid, you know, like, uh, you yeah. know, I went to see Live and Let Die. Well, I think maybe even the first, oh, maybe Jaws was the first one I saw. I still not got over that. But um, <laughs> I saw Live and Let Die. Paul McCartney did the thing. That was one of the first times I ever went to the movies on my own. And then, you know, of course, when I got more into music and everything and discovered what a genius John Barry was, uh, got into all of that on Majesty's Secret Service and you, uh, you Only Live Twice and stuff. Some of that music is really amazing. So when Hans, I, you know, if there's a guitar thing going on with, it seems the last 10 years, if, if this guitar is required on Hans's movie, I'm, I'm kind of like the his go-to kind of guitar guy. So I'm very uh, privileged to say. And uh, so he called me and he'd just been asked. And then he was like, look, we really need to put guitar back into the Bond movies because back in the day, in the 60s, 
the, the guitar was such a big yeah. part of it. And then yeah. it's just kind of fallen out of favor. I mean, the guitar generally, uh, I didn't know this, but when I did Inception, I discovered that uh, the, the guitar had, had been a no-no in movies for years and years because of the, the, what had happened in the 80s. It becomes so unfashionable. You know, it was a lot of kind of very processed, sort of overly produced kind of blues rock things that had happened. Uh, and uh, seemingly a lot of directors were just like, look, were anything but the guitar. So it was quite a big deal putting a lot of guitar on Inception. And then once we did that, almost every movie that came out for the next couple of years sounded like Inception, which was amazing. <laughs> I was sort of so pleased for the guitar, you know? And uh, so we, we, we on, on that Bond movie, I, I believe me, I put it in every fucking scene, man. <laughs> <laughs> I can't, yeah, I imagine it, like, of all the like boxes to check in your, in your life uh, growing up doing a James Bond film, man, that is like, that, that's great. And Inception, yeah, by the moment. way, we should mention that was a hell of a sound. That's one of my favorite soundtracks. That is a, such a great soundscape. Uh, and, and oh, Yeah. Yeah. Great. Well, the movie, yeah. I mean, that was an amazing experience with Hans. Yeah. That was the first one we did, we did. And then after that we did Free Held. It was a Julian Moore film. I did Rango. Uh, there was a Spider-Man film then. And I think there's another one I'm forgetting. And anyway, yeah, there's been, a, there's been a few now. So, it's great because it's uh, yeah the Bond thing was particularly amazing you know but I get to do some stuff that you just you just don't do on you don't do it on your records yeah. these really bugged out things you know I play a double neck always on the movies but that's because you can't see it when I'm doing it <laughs> but I use one of those double neck things and uh, yeah and I get to make all these really weird weird sounds these days and everything so yeah it's it's, it's a it's a kind of a break from a day job it's great. So it was bugged out, man. When I did, when we did this Bond movie, first scene I worked on was the end, and I was like, <laughs> I got to work on this film now for two months. And you know the and and I've been working on the end for like ten days. And cheers, guys. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then and then there's something I I heard I read it really quick. Um, I just love this so much, and and the fact that it was naughty by nature that gave you this, which of course it was. Um, this strength through health quote yeah. that uh, yeah, I read yeah. you say, I think it was in men's health that I, that I read you yeah. learned by hanging out with naughty by nature, strength through health to me gets into everything you're doing. Like you're, you're able to do so much stuff. You're taking care of yourself. You're, you're always focused on the future. It feels like, and collaborating and thinking about your fans and have this, uh, I don't know. There's just there's just a lot going on with with how you approach life, yeah. and to me that strength through health. When I saw that, just jumped out at me. And then I read it was not in my nature that what, what happened there was short version was that they, they were making a movie in in New York in some pretty edgy parts of town. Uh, so we need we needed some some protection. We needed some yeah some muscle there or people, people who knew the score protection. And naughty by nature's guys were were working on it, and they were around. And then I, I really liked that that movement of early '90s hip hop music. I thought it was super progressive. It's hardly yeah. ever been beaten. So, yeah, and yeah. there's a load of reasons why it was so good. And um, so I was like, hey, well, what's with, you know, were you guys in? What's with all the kind of like all the hench thing? And what's with it? every video I see? Someone's doing like press ups and stuff. What's that about? <laughs> and and they, you know, they they were telling me like uh, the the politics behind it. You know about you know the, it's hard enough being a a young black man in that period of time in America, and you have to kind of there's a infil, you know infiltration of of crack, uh, and you know you just strength through health, you know, and so obviously that really sounded logical to me, but 
I, you know, I love, I, I love rock and roll and, and, you know, but I want to, I want to be um, live in the modern world as well. You know what I mean? I don't, yeah. I, I can really dig like, I love hearing some old Rolling Stones records and Aerosmith and all of that for that. But I, I, I when I put the Smiths together, I was very aware that I was part of a new generation of boys with a different way of thinking. And that went into my guitar playing. And I mean, you know, I mean, you, you kind of have these big ideas when you're young, you know, but, you know, I've been asked about it over the years. So you hone it and people asking me what I'm about and all of that, you know, you have to talk about something other than smoking pot and Manchester city football club, you know? So I, I was listening. Was like, okay, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, it becomes a little bit of a philosophy, and it's kind of okay. I could hear myself talking. And one, but and one of the things was I just didn't want to be one of the rocker. I, I enjoy being a guitar hero, a British guitar hero, if that's what it is. But I, I don't want to be stuck in 1971. And when I heard Naughty by Nature saying that, it just sounded so un rock and roll and so anti what was going on, particularly in the UK in the early 90s with the rave culture and. I was bored of that. I dug it at this time and it just sounded really progressive again. Comes back to this thing of like, what's going to make me a better musician? You know, it's got nothing to do with being puritanical. Uh, if I thought partying on whatever level was going to make me a more creative person, I'd be doing it. So no morality is involved in this. And uh, it just seems logical, but it kind of sounded modern and it sounded not rock and roll and it sounded kind of not, I didn't want to be an indie I didn't want to fall down some indie ghetto, you know, forever, you know. So, uh, and I, I also, I liked kind of getting up the noses of the indie music press in England. I thought, oh, well, this will kind of turn you, because I was being put in a bag, you know, when I was, and I was still young enough to be like, you, no one wants to be put in a bag, you know. So I thought, well, no, fuck you. I'll sort of get on a different sort of vibe. And that, that got me into running and all of that. And I kind of thought, hey, this is, this really works. I love it. There's personal power in having a strong mind, and a strong body and taking care of yourself. And it sounds like that that's the road you chose. And it turned out, <laughs> it worked out for you. <laughs> yeah, but you know, I don't want to sound like I've got all the answers because I'm, I am enthusiastic about this. You know, it's one of the reasons why I wanted to talk to you guys because it sounded like not, you know, uh, it's an unusual and very positive thing you've got going on. But because I'm aware, you know, like, because life, life's hard enough when things are going good, you know. Shit happens, you know. I've got a yeah. family. I've got a, a band. Uh, you, you know, sickness happens. Uh, you know, autoimmune diseases happen to your friends and family, or, or possibly yourself. You know, we have what God knows. You know, look what's happening on a daily basis. The uncertainty of COVID. But you know, you exactly what you're saying, me. Yeah, strength, power, good things happen. But because. Because also, it's just the way life is. You know, if you look at Marcus Aurelius and the Stoics, you know, if you look at any of what they, what they had to say, you know, it's not negative to go literally, you know, memento mori. You, you, it is a fact you could die in the next five minutes. Yeah, you know, yeah. life, is, life is short. I know to some people it feels long. You know, it, it's not all about the roses, even when you're in good shape. Really? Yeah, yeah. I, I I was reading meditations last night uh, before I went to bed. Actually, I have that uh, yeah. a new kind of a new translation of it, and I'm very. I, it feels like Stoics. It resonates with me, like how to that the journey becomes, or the the obstacle in the journey becomes the journey has been life changing for me. Instead of why does this keep happening? Why is everything yeah. that like why? Oh, this oh here it is again. Oh, this is un and <clears throat> it's no way to live. That is absolutely. And I realize the obstacles uh, along the way have made me 
who I am. I'm not begging for these obstacles. I don't want them to happen necessarily, but they do and they become part of the journey. It seems like a, a better way because no one's getting out without obstacles. No one's getting out. And if they are. And, and also stuff that you think that is bad, that is happening, isn't happening. It's how you perceive it, which is coming mm -hmm. back to what we, Amy was saying right at the start of all this, you know, it's like maybe, you know, it's the way you look at it. Yeah, not, not as in like, hey, well, you know, like you turn that frown upside down, but really quite often, you know, you, the one thing, you are in control of how you react, it, you know, and hey, it's easy to say it once you've read it. I mean, actually living it is another, another thing when, <laughs> when someone cuts you up in traffic or prangs your car or whatever the hell goes yes, on, you know. Yes, very uh, true. But, but, you know, we're all trying and it? so it's all a work in progress, man. It's every day, that's what it's like for me. It's a, and I'm so blessed that I've got like an outlet and, 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 and I also... I feel very fortunate that I, I embraced upset. I decided obsession, it can be really handy when yeah. you put it in the right place. That's right. I am by nature a Mancunian guitar playing, get up at 11 a.m., pot smoking, rock and roll beast, right? But um, because I started <laughs> to know myself. For, yeah, that's my middle name, man. That's right. Well, the, the new record, we know that's coming out February. 25th fever dreams part one through four you didn't mess around here no, got, no. got a lot of music uh and i'll be i assume gonna be out on vinyl i'll be grabbing that yeah. as well yeah yeah good good luck with that johnny and we i can't wait to see we'll be there uh in august uh, again august 20th in seattle and uh, i know you'll be hitting portland and a lot of places up here in the pacific northwest so we're looking forward to it. good luck with the touring and the new year and the album and uh it's just been a, a pleasure to talk to you and uh thanks for taking the time Thanks for inviting me. on the doctor and the dj podcast man it was fun talking to him he was all the way over in his studios in manchester and we really appreciate him taking time between promoting his new record recording making james bond themes and all the things that johnny marr does can't wait for him to get to town so we can see him perform live man i'm just hoping we get to see a lot more live music in the near future they say it's going to be getting better soon, so fingers crossed we'll get out there and see one another. Thank you for listening to the Doctor and the DJ podcast. Really appreciate you subscribing, spreading the word. Your marketing is our marketing, so tell everyone you know about the Doctor and the DJ podcast. You can find us on Instagram. It's where we are the most active. The Doctor and the DJ is where you find us there. You can go to the doctorandthedj.com as well to get information about all that Dr. Amy and I are involved with. I want to thank everybody who's a part of this podcast. All our friends over at Ruinous Media, our buddy Michael Lerner, Telekinesis for doing the theme, Jay Cox for helping out, and our sponsor, we want to thank Wonderground Coffee. They are amazing. They've been a big help to this 
Dr. and the DJ podcast. They make the world's most delicious mushroom coffee and tea. I am a coffee snob and it is my favorite coffee in town. I'm not just saying that because they're a sponsor. We really love it. And uh, makes you feel better as well. They're crafted to inspire moments of wonder from day to night. And they believe the world's new normal asks us to carry quite a bit of weight and stress and worry. You know, we talk about that quite a bit. So they're creating something that helps ease that burden at its core. Coffee is connection, and we need this more than ever. You can go to WondergroundCoffee.com and at the Wonderground Cafe located on Capitol Hill and East Pike between 11th and 12th. You can find my and Amy's bar around that area as well, uh, Life on Mars, and use that discount. Not at the bar. We need your money. But Wonderground's going to offer it up. Dr. Wonder is all you got to tell them for 10% off your purchase. Big thank you to them and to our friends over at Flying Apron as well. You get a discount there when you mention the doctor and the DJ there in the junction here in West Seattle. All right, that's it for us. We'll be back soon and we're going to leave you with one more. This from Johnny Marr from his brand new release. Thank you so much for listening. You are not alone.